to say we uh, get, get rolling. All right, let's do it. So, welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Husker Du and The Replacements. So each episode will be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host, Greg. How's it going, Greg? It's going well. It's going well. How about you? Good, yeah. Doing really uh, good. I'm excited to dive into uh, this week's episode uh, on Candy Apple Gray. Yeah. Husker Du. Yeah, so this week we'll be discussing Husker Du's 1986 album, Candy Apple Gray, which was released on Warner Brother Records. So first, some quick bookkeeping. Just thank you so, so much to everyone who listened to the first episode, to those who have been active on our Instagram account, the support that we've received, notably a repost on an Instagram post from Siren Records and others. Um, it's just like so appreciated and fully, frankly, like really humbling. Um, you know, I... Um, I'm just like so uh, taken aback that um, folks are so excited uh, to listen to our podcast. So thank you so much to those who've reached out to be interviewed also. So if you contacted us about being interviewed, please rest assured that um, we will be in touch and that we want to have you on the podcast. Um, it's just a matter of time. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, you know, it's a, it's a pretty ni uh, niche. Is that the right word? Niche? Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh podcast so i wasn't sure like i was like are we gonna be the only people wanting to, to listen to the I know. to this like I, we're just gonna record, <laughs> just record it for ourselves to listen to while working uh so yeah it's really great and, and yeah shout out to siren records um this year will be actually 25 years i've been going there and i've definitely bought countless replacements and husker do related releases there over the last you know, a couple decades. So it was really awesome to see them uh, give the pod a shout. And yeah, we definitely had some people uh, check it out because of that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you all so much. So, um, so I guess to kind of dive into our discussion of Candy Apple Gray. Um, so some general thoughts about the album. First, a question um, that might be, you know, on your mind is sort of why are we doing Candy Apple Gray, especially as our first um, individual album discussion. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I think it's a really great album. I think it's a really important one for the band. Um, Greg, you shared on the last episode that this was actually the first Husker Du record that you owned, right? Right. This was my, this was my introduction to Husker Du. And while I wouldn't necessarily tell someone that this is the album to start with, um, because, and like we'll we'll get into when we go over the songs, um, it can be it can take a it's a slow burn. I think some of it it's a agreed, burn that agreed. I, some of the tracks I really didn't notice until listening to it multiple times this week really kind of popped out. Um, but it's it's not necessarily a starting point. Although I had people reach out and a few people say this is my favorite Husker Du album, and I had other people reach out and say this is my least favorite Husker Du album. Yeah, and that's kind of what we mean by important. In that you know it is the major label debut, mm -hmm. um, and in in retrospect, it's an album that sometimes is overlooked in their catalog, but has some really great songs. So hopefully we can you know, highlight those great songs and people can give another listen maybe and formulate a new opinion. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I had a, a friend contact me and say that they were like really eager to hear this coming episode because they were like, I'm a huge Husker Du fan. And I really only think I've listened to that album a handful of times, but then conversely, which we'll get into when we get um, further along in this episode, it has maybe one of their best known songs on it. Um, so um, my personal connection to this record was that when I was about 25, I was living in South Philly and it was, you know, the beginning, arguably, maybe of the gig economy. And one of my part time jobs was up in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. Um, and I had this CD in my car CD player um, and I listened to it without taking it out of the CD player on that stretch of 95 between South Philly and Langhorne for probably like a solid month, month and a half. Um, so you know, I really had a, t a lot of time at that point in my life to just like 
pour over the album. Um, and it's one that I, I really love. But like you said, Greg, it's not maybe one that I would incur- like, I wouldn't, if somebody were like, I've never heard Who's Gonna Do before, I wouldn't say Candy Apple Grey would be your entry point. Um, but for a lot of folks, it is. Um, so a little bit about the chronology. And um, so everything falls apart, right? Comes out in January of 83. And to jump ahead, Candy Apple Grey comes out in March of 86. So like thinking about that, there's like everything falls apart, Metal Circus, Zen Arcade, New Day Rising, Flip Your Wig, then Candy Apple Grey, right? In like a little bit over a three year span, which is actually mind blowing. Just the sheer amount of like um, exceptional music that they recorded and released in that short time span. so this is also their major label debut, right? So, um, so although Warner was courting them for Flip Your Wig, the record that was obviously prior to this, um, which was still on SST, um, uh, this, was their, uh, this was their debut on Warner Brothers. Um, and Greg, you were, you were sort of saying before the podcast started um, that there was some vague interest um, as far back, major label interest as far back as Zen Arcade, right? So... I was reading from Andrew Earle's book and he had an interview with Greg Norton and Greg Norton talked about how um, Greg Norton bass player for who's could do um, that even around the time of Zen arcade, they had, you know, just, a, it was cursory interest and nothing as serious as what ended up happening after, after flip your wig. But, you know, cause Zen arcade, and we don't want to spend too much time talking about that because that'll have its own episode, but Zen Arcade had a lot of buzz at the time. It was their first album to be reviewed in Rolling Stone, uh, I believe. Um, got a good review, and um, you know that got them some attention at the time. So it was really time to strike once you know they started writing what would become Flip Your Wig. So there is a common misconception a lot of times, and it might have even been from the American Hardcore book by Stephen Blush, I'm not sure, um, that they were the first American indie slash hardcore band from the underground to sign to a major label. That's actually not true. Um, There was, you know, the replacements signed their deal with Sire, for instance, uh, almost a full year before Husker Du signed, the replacement signed at the end of mm. 1984, I believe. And Husker Du signed, in a, per Bob's book, they signed on Veterans Day of 1985. Um, so before the album, before they signed, Spin Magazine, which was new at this point, Whoa. Um, did a concert. Um, that was on August 28th of 1985. And that concert actually became one of the most bootleg performances of Husker Du's career. Uh, Spin had pressed a promo LP for radio stations around the country. And of course that circulated and became bootlegged. And a thing about Husker Du, the set list for this show included almost half of Candy Apple Grey, which wasn't even recorded at that point, and included lots of songs from Flip Your Wig, which wasn't even released at that point, because that came out uh, a couple weeks after this show. And the Hooskers did that a lot. You know, a lot of bands road test material. That's a common thing. Um, You know, when I saw several times, like Fugazi, for instance, is one that comes to mind they would always be testing material from the next album. Yeah. And um, with Husker Du, they would be testing material from the next album and then even the one after that. Uh, so crazy. Which, right. It's, it's, it is crazy. And I, and I do wonder, like, looking back at this set list, which, um, you know, I can post on our socials, um, but looking at this set list, in retrospect, you're like, oh my gosh, this is like hit after hit. But you wonder if you were a fan, you'd probably only know half of the set. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So like you go there like thinking you're going to hear songs off Zen Arcade or whatever, right? And you're actually hearing songs off albums that are like two after that. 
so then of course after after this show um you know they go in around you know they signed to warner brothers in november and that same month they start recording uh the major label debut which is known as candy apple gray yeah what a like gosh like what a like workhorse right so workhorse band um so uh so bob and grant produced this one right with steve fjellstad hopefully i'm pronouncing that right engineering um and Bob and Grant also produced Flip Your Wig prior to this with Steve Fjellstad engineering that as well. Um, but Spot produced uh, New Day Rising, obviously. Spot was like Spot was like the house producer for SST, right, Craig? Yeah, he did. He, he was just, I mean, obviously if you Black look at those records. Right, Flag, uh, you know, Meat Puppets, um, Gosh, I, we, I, I can't, Minutemen, I'm sure, at least the early stuff. Um, he did a ton of things, and I'm sure he did it. You know, the reason SST used him, from what I can gather, is probably, one, he was a friend of the label, but two, he was cheap. You know, he did stuff efficiently and quick, and some of those records sound good, and some sound not so good. And I know with, with Husker Du, that's always been a point of contention i think for some people where it's it's hard like us coming from you know like we talked about in episode one coming from the punk hardcore scene we're kind of used to stuff sounding like shit (laughs) (laughs) so when i hear like zen arcade i'm like okay this doesn't sound like you know sugar copper blue or anything but i get it and you know reading how long it took them to record and how the takes like it makes sense and um that it sounds like what it sounds like yeah but with um you know some of the other stuff it it can be tough um so with starting with flip your wig they began to grant and bob began to produce themselves and use an engineer which is what they did you know on everything that came out after you know flip your wig included uh and the last two albums so um and one of the things, so Husker Du were pretty smart, I think, from what I gather historically about their signing to a major label. They didn't necessarily go for the flashy deal. They went for the artistic control, which is something you always hear about with bands, but they, they said, like, we have to self-produce. Um, I think they took less of an advance because they knew that an advance means that we're going to have to pay this back. Um, you know, a lot of bands that sign, especially back then, I think didn't know. And they're like, oh, we're getting, you know, $250,000. This is great. But it's called an advance because they're advancing you the money. So when, when Hooskers signed, they made sure they had control. They were producing. They actually were self-managed. Um, and then I think Warner Brothers, that was the one thing is they're like, you need a manager. So they had a friend of Bob's boyfriend at the time uh, named David Savoy, who we'll talk about him more uh, in the warehouse episode. But when they began recording, Warner Brothers was really hands off. They, they didn't have a bunch of suits there watching. They just let them do what they wanted to do. Uh, the only employee that came by was Karen Berg, who was the uh, person who signed them. Um, while they were recording, and this is from Greg Norton directly in uh, the aforementioned book by Andrew Erlis. Uh, Grant and Bob were actually smoking a lot of opium during the, the sessions. And, you know, in retrospect, as an adult, when I was a kid, if I would have heard this, I wouldn't have understood. But now as an adult, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can really hear it in the songs, which, yeah. like we said, we'll we'll get to the songs in a minute. Um, but Norton said that you know by his own hand, sort of, he was a lot more hands off during recording, which can be understandable when you're dealing with two clashing personalities like Bob Mould and Grant Hart. Right, and you know Greg was always kind of seen as as the middleman, even though you know he's an integral part of the band. Mm -hmm. Um, and he actually took off during the beginning of the recording. He said he went on a camping trip and he said he came back to lay down his, his tracks. And he was like, what have you guys been doing? (laughs) (laughs) And and that was when he realized 
that they were using opium. Gotcha. Gosh, the, the like very hands-off aspect of the recording session, um, uh, something that um, that makes me think of is like the stories that you hear about the recording of obviously not a shift from a major or from an independent label to a major label, but the recording session stories that you hear from Nirvana's in utero when they recorded at, um, I believe it was Pachyderm Studios at the time with Steve Albini. Um, and uh, were extremely, extremely protective about who was even allowed into the studio at the time. Yeah, um, and, and it's, um, this was also, in doing research for the episode, I realized this could be the beginning of the end, um, which is sad because it's their major label debut. It's supposed to be this, you know, glorious occasion and they're, they have this record and it's supposed to put them into the stratosphere. But around the same time too, they started a company that I believe rented out studio gear. Um, and I can't think of the name right now uh, for the company, but it was, I believe Steve Fjellstad again, sorry, <laughs> sorry for butchering yeah. uh, the name uh, Grant, and Bob and they um, did this during Candy Apple Greg Greg wasn't included so when the band broke up the band didn't have money but the company did uh. so they all got paid and other people including Greg didn't get any money after the demise of the band yeah you could see how that could lead to some complicated responses yeah, another general thought about this record. So sort of like this record for me exists on the Venn, like a Venn diagram, right? So I think about bands who are like moving from a musical subculture um, into writing more commercially accessible music. So particularly um, moving from a punk hardcore scene, even more particularly doing that in the 1980s, right? So um, we could devote an entire podcast about bands that sort of attempted to do that, right? To sort of like, you know, their sound, they stay together for a while, the sound itself progresses, um, and they kind of start making music that sounds a little bit um, more evolved than what they initially were. Um, bands that have done that well, bands that have done that, you know, maybe arguably not as well, right? Um, so that's sort of like one circle on the Venn diagram. And then the other circle on the Venn diagram is bands moving from a smaller independent label to a major, right? So Husker do with this one, it's obviously like smack dab in the middle of that Venn diagram. So um, many bands have attempted both of those maneuvers, um, but when we get into the album, I argue that Husker do pulls both of them off here, which is something that like, you know, cannot be overstated in my mind, um, particularly when coming from like a really like um, ethos based subculture, like the punk and hardcore scene is. Um, where sort of maintaining one's credibility and clout within that scene is really, really important to the audience. Um, well, I wanted to I wanted to add before we went forward. The company was called Massive Leasing that, okay. that did the um, that did the uh, the leasing company that was formed around the time of signing to the major. Got it. So, like Jude touched on, there despite whether or not you believe the Hooskers pulled off their move, there definitely was criticism from the underground. Um, specifically, Maximum Rock and Roll, uh, which is a fanzine that was started in the early 1980s by uh, the late Tim Yohannan. Um, so they did, in February 1986, they had an issue that actually had a fake advertisement of a drawing of Grant Hart and he was, you know, this was to make fun of their move to Warner brothers. Cause at this point everybody knew. And, um, he, it, he's modeling some Husker do underoos and it's a pretty unflattering drawing, which, uh, we'll, we'll share once the episode's out, uh, we'll share that on our, on our Instagram. So you can see, um, but at the same time, um, Maximum Rock and Roll did let Husker Du have their own voice and voice their side of the story. So they started a column 
in the zine called what the fuck and basically they would ask a question and allow you know a person to use their long form answer as a column and the second one ever was them asking bob mould about signing to warner brothers and allowing mould to write a column that defended uh, the band's choice to sign. So I have a little excerpt that Bob shared in his book that I'll read um, from his column. It's a fairly long column, which you can see, uh, you know, via Google, I'm sure, if you have the book. Um, so here it goes. We're still conscious of our audience. We're still trying to play all ages shows. We're trying to keep the ticket price down. Just because we've signed to Warner Brothers doesn't mean that there won't be 10 new bands next week. If anything, it might be a sign that something is happening, that some people are finally listening to the underground, and they might even respect what's going on. Nobody at Warner has asked us to tone down. They haven't asked us to sound like you 2 They're completely happy with the high-end distortion and tons of ride cymbals and people yelling and singing pretty and writing any kinds of words they want. They signed Husker Du because they liked Husker Du and not because they think we will be the next Rick Springfield. So reading this is pretty funny because it's, it's a bit dated. Yeah. Um, U2, the mention of U2 makes me chuckle because that was a big <laughs> thing that I think some people don't realize in the early to mid 80s when you two really broke a lot of bands from the punk scene wanted to take that sound that you're more the guitar player than I am, but the yeah. like reverby uh, echoey yeah. guitar and the, that post punk vibe. Like, I mean, you read in our band could be your life about minor threat. Like right, that was right. one of the things that, you know, tore them apart is that some of the members wanted to sound like you two seven seconds had their, uh, brief foray into mm -hmm, sounding like you mm -hmm. too. So this was kind of funny to read. And then of course the mention of Rick Springfield as being <laughs> the barometer for, for a, like huge success. But I will say that I do think even though Husker Du wasn't necessarily the first to sign, they're so different from the replacements ethics wise. Yeah. That I think that this did actually set a standard that is still followed probably even to this day. I know that I, and I forget if it's mentioned in Bob's book or where, but like Thurston Moore reached out to Bob um, when they were going to sign right. to Geffen. So. Yeah. Yeah. And not to sort of maybe, you know, prefigure anything that you were going to be discussing or had maybe uh, cover ground you'd already talked about, but that's one thing that when I think of the, bands that successfully move from a smaller label to a major label, the first one that comes to mind is Sonic Youth, right? In ways that they were able to um, very skillfully, carefully maintain their integrity and make choices that were the best for the band and their audience at the time um, and get what they wanted out of it, um, what, what served the band and the music. Yeah, and they had a very, very fruitful career at Geffen. Yeah. And you they can even they can thank bands like the Hooskers for kind of blazing that trail. And um I believe it was Karen Berg who signed them that said Husker Du breaking up in nineteen eighty eight was almost every reason why REM signed to Warner Brothers in nineteen eighty eight. It sort of left a vacuum. So there was this got the ball rolling, I think, for underground music to come into the mainstream. And I think even for artists like Nirvana and, you know, um, all those, all those groups, Green Day, like we mentioned in the first episode, yeah. all owe a debt to, you know, the Hooskers and bands of that ilk for blazing that trail. Yeah. Yeah. Other general thoughts about this record um, before we get into the track by track is, you know, I love Bob all day. Um, when I think about this album, um, in my mind, this is a Grant Hart album. Um, so, We'll get into that some when we get into the individual tracks and there'll be some, I think, interesting deliberation about that. But also something that dawned on me this week 
um, is that together, I don't know, you and I have probably seen Bob solo play like two dozen times or something, like a lot. And he definitely does some awesome stuff when he draws on his back catalog. We've seen him play Husker stuff. We've seen him play like earlier solo stuff. We've seen him play um, Sugar stuff. I don't think I've ever seen Bob play a single song off this record that I recall. Have you, Greg? I was actually thinking about it when I saw the notes for this episode. And I want to say he had hardly getting over it in the set list for the Sunshine Rock tour. But my show didn't have it. Um, So that's the one song I could see him playing. Like the others, I don't think he plays anymore. But Too Far Down and um, Hardly Getting Over It, I think are... I don't want to say staples, but like I've, I've also never seen them and I've seen him a handful of times. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other kind of just general thought about the album is that um, this has maybe their most famous song. So don't want to know if you're lonely. So this is kind of a side note and I'm not claiming that Spotify streaming counts are the only metric. Um, but as I was preparing for this episode, I noticed on Spotify that the song Hardly Getting Over It has plays in the 11 million range. And like the next most played Husker Du songs on Spotify are in the like 3 million range. So again, not like absolutely like a, an airtight metric of um, what their most famous song is. Um, but I do think it's, it's an indicator of, um, of how popular that particular song is. I think you meant don't want to know if you're lonely, right? I yeah. think you might... You might have said hard. I think you said hardly getting over it. Okay, (laughs) which would be kind of crazy if that was the most played song, just because it's such a such a downer. I know. (laughs) If I did, I have to go back and listen. So sorry about that. I have quarantine brain here, folks. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So maybe we'll get into the track by track. Cool. Sounds good. Why don't you get us started off? Um, So obviously, track one is a Bob Mould song, Crystal. So track one is Crystal. So thinking about it in prep for the episode, I went, this is the first Husker Du song I ever heard because it's the first album I ever heard. So <laughs> putting in the CD, I had no idea what to expect. You know, my 13-year-old brain at the time. Um, it's very aggressive. Um, and, you know, Bob mentions in his bio, it was done on purpose. He was of the mindset that if they opened up with, if they opened the album with one of the more melodic, I hate to use the term radio friendly, but I don't know what else to describe it as, but one of those songs, he'd immediately lose everyone that came from the underground hardcore punk scene. And they'd go, Oh, these guys have gone soft and, you know, look what the major label did. So they figured this was kind of like a, you know, middle finger saying, look, we can still thrash. Yeah. Um, it's, it really does sound like just a better produced track that would have fit on side two of Zen Arcade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good song. It's not my favorite Bob song, even on this record, but I think it does its job for opening the album. And an interesting side note is, um, and again, this is something I'll make sure that we share so you can see when I got the CD, it had this, I guess at this point, cause maybe the CD wasn't immediately pressed when the vinyl was, or it was a second pressing or something, but it had like a little one page bio about the album and the highlight tracks that it highlighted was it didn't highlight the singles. It said featuring songs, crystal and Dead Set on Destruction, which huh. I just find kind of funny that they were the two songs that were highlighted on the uh, yeah. on the inner sleeve. Huh, interesting. Yeah, my initial thoughts about this song, when I listened to it, when I very first heard it, like you did, and then like when I go back and listen to it now, my initial thoughts are that this song is a Zen Arcade song, right? Um, and, you know, it's a great song. Um, I definitely can hear ways that they were um, maybe, you know, sort of uh, showing that they like still had like kind of the ability to like blast out like a really killer aggressive punk song. Um, 
So this is like kind of dating me a little bit, but it makes me think of it. I, I love the song, right? Um, but I have to share that um, when I reach for Candy Apple Gray, um, I'm reaching for a slightly different band than the band that I reach for when I reach for Zen Arcade, if that makes sense, right? So this is dating me a little bit, but there's a uh, sketch from MTV's The State where the mailman decides to start delivering tacos, right? And the dude who's getting his mail is like, look, they're, they're great tacos. They're delicious. They might be the best tacos I've ever eaten in my life. But if I don't get my mail, I won't be able to get my bills. I could lose my house, right? So sort of, I share that to say that like, you know, um, I think Crystal is, not to say that Crystal is uh, uh, tacos and that, um, or, or Zen Arcade is tacos and that Candy Apple Gray is your mortgage payment. But sort of my, my point is that like, you know, um, I'm, I'm reaching for a different band, a slightly uh, more, more evolved band, a, a band at a different place, right? So in Michael Azarad's book with Bob, they talk about, I think Bob says, I can neither confirm nor deny whether or not this happened. I don't want to get too into Zen Arcade, but one of the rumors that you've heard about Zen Arcade was that supposedly they brewed coffee with speed in it, right? So maybe that happened, maybe it didn't when they were recording Zen Arcade, but that's the band that I'm reaching for when I reach for Zen Arcade, right? They're the, uh, young, brilliant men who are nutty, who are like maybe doing like wild, ambitious things. Um, again, I don't want to get too in the weeds with talking about Zen Arcade, but um, just thinking about that record as a double LP concept album is like, in, like a double LP concept album that is also a punk album is like such a crazy ambitious thing. Um, anyway, so that's the band that I'm, that I'm reaching for when I reach for Zen Arcade. And I just, this album, this song stands out to me. It does. It's, it's the only one that sounds to me like it would have been on the earlier stuff. There's a few that yeah. could have been on Flip Your Wig or, or even New Day Rising, but this is the only one that really sounds like, you know, like Zen Arcade or Metal mm -hmm. Circus, just yeah. with a little bit cleaner production. Mm -hmm. And it's funny you mentioned about the speed in the coffee, because isn't there the lyric in this, sugar in your coffee doesn't taste quite right? Huh. <laughs> so feeling the effects of 100,000 nights, I think. So yeah. maybe maybe the sugar didn't taste quite right, but maybe the little bit of speed <laughs> uh, tasted right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there you go. So uh, maybe we'll move on to track two. Um, so don't want to know if you're lonely. So track two uh, is a Grant Hart song. Um, one of the things about this album is that I think more than any other one almost, it really goes every other song, Bob Grant, except Bob does get two in a row, uh, as you'll see. So this is Don't Want to Know If You're Lonely. Um, you know, like Jude was saying earlier, this this is the most popular song, at least per Spotify, and with good reason. Um, yeah. It had a video. It was the lead-off single. The video I know got a good amount of play on 120 minutes. Um, Green Day actually covered this song around the warning era in 2000. And I think for Record Store Day, um, one year they did one of those, Warner Brothers would do these artist splits where they cover the same song. So they had the Husker version on one side and the Green Day version on the other. Um, it's just a really well-written song. It's this is actually a song if someone never heard Husker do, I might play them this song first. Yeah. Not necessarily my all-time favorite Husker do song, but it's just it's so damn good. And I was thinking to when I was younger, I don't know, I don't know if I paid attention that there were two singers. So to <laughs> me, I just thought, "Oh, he sounds different on this song." Um it was probably until maybe a little bit later when I realized that there were, you know, two different vocalists, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But this song, you know, another, when we talk about the beginning of the end during the recording process, another thing that Bob cites is, you know, uh, that soured him for the rest of the band, uh, at least the cycle for this record, especially was, you know, he supposedly had a conversation with Grant, where Grant said, you know, I'm going to have the first fucking single or else. Man. And Bob kind of went, look, I get it. 
you know, it's clear that, you know, like Jude mentioned, this is a grand album. Bob said, it's clear you wrote the singles for this album. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not relenting. Um, but, you know, there was two singles released and we'll, we'll get to the other one in a minute on this. And they're both Grant songs. And there is also a theory that I was reading in Andrew Earle's book where they think that part of the reason that Bob agreed to release Flip Your Wig on SST because, you know, it's pretty well known that Warner Brothers expressed interest even in Flip Your Wig. Yeah. They said, hey, we'll release this as it is. And the Hooskers said, no, you know, out of loyalty to SST. But there's, there's theories that Bob didn't want to because he knew that the second single, um, they were really going to push the song Green Eyes from Flip Your Wig huh. um, as like a, for to college radio. Yeah. You know, sort of like Diane from Metal Circus was, again, another Grant song. So Bob knew that if, if it went to Warner's, that's what would have happened. But if it stayed on SST, since SST knew they were leaving, they'd only push one single. So it's just some food for thought. I, I don't yeah. know how true that is, but it's, it's an interesting tidbit nonetheless. What really strikes me about this song um, is just that Grant writes the best Irish goodbyes, right? So like thinking about this and then like also um, Never Talking to You Again from uh, Zen Arcade, um, it's just like Grant writes the best songs about like, this is over and I, I can't even like talk to you anymore. Obviously, Never Talking to You Again is uh, not necessarily overtly. I'm not really, Greg, you probably know more about the background of that song in particular um, or if it ties into the record's larger Zen Arcade's larger concept, um, but doesn't necessarily overtly seem like it is a breakup song, whereas this one does. Right. Yeah. And we'll 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 have to we'll definitely get into that on the on the Zen episode. Yeah. Um so did you have any more thoughts on on this track? I mean it's amazing, right? It's just like it's it's I mean there's a reason that I think it's the most streamed song on Spotify, right? Um I agree with you that while to contradict what we'd said earlier, like while I maybe wouldn't, um, I wouldn't uh, point folks towards Candy Apple Gray if they'd never heard Husker Do before, I might point them specifically towards this song. Um, yeah, like th this song, I think could have been a, a radio hit, honestly. Yeah. And like they could have done that if, if things, if we were in an alternate universe. And they would have maybe had like this done like a remix by like, I'm trying to think of who was maybe a popular mixer at that time. I don't know if Andy Wallace was doing stuff or, or something, just like a, a little spit shine, a, a radio mix. I think it could have been big and it could have been like, who know, like again, if this would have been maybe even on Flip Your Wig and Flip Your Wig came out and was a little more polished, they could have been Nirvana as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. just a few years earlier but it's just it's a great song um i honestly never get tired of hearing it no um it's it's got all the makings of a great song it's, it's catchy it's it's well written grant sounds great every song on here or almost every song that's not acoustic or a ballad starts off with that same drum <laughs> Have you ever noticed crystal yeah. At least the first three songs on here all start with the same like snare, you know. Tuk -a -tuk -a -tuk -a -tuk. So yeah. I don't know if that was intentional or or what, but it's it when and once you hear that and then you you can't unhear it. Huh. <laughs> well, maybe we'll move on to track three. So track three, Bob Mould song. I don't know for sure. So I don't know for sure. I think it's a great song, Bob in his book says that it's not a great song. Um, you know, he's the, he's the writer. And a lot of times for people that are close to, you know, close to the, to the song, have a different view than those who, like myself who are just a, a listener. So I get why he would say he doesn't think it's great, but I do. I think it's catchy. I think it does have uh, makes no sense at all kind of feel to it a little bit yeah um so in a way it sort of seems like a, a retread of of that style of song but it's it's well done and if you're going to plagiarize someone you may as well plagiarize yourself <laughs> but it's also odd that it wasn't the single 
because Bob is has gone on record as saying he always puts like the hot track at number three hmm. on the album. So to me, it was kind of odd that this wasn't maybe considered as as a follow up single to "Don't Want to Know If You're Lonely." Yeah. Huh. Interesting. I wonder if his. I I'd be curious to further research this, but I wonder if his perspective changed about it as the you know, as the song, the recording process finished and um, they began to play the song and things like that. It definitely, I do feel that makes no sense at all vibe, even in just the general like message of the song. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I know that um, I, I've read that Bob, uh, I've, seen, I, I've seen him play, it makes no sense at all. It's awesome. Um, I know that, I, I think the quote is something like, he said something like, if, um, if we were playing and we found out that bombs were going to drop in eight minutes during the set, like in the middle of the set, we would play makes no sense at all. Like that is like, I know he's gone on record as saying that that song is, um, you know, one that uh, he just really enjoys playing and is like personally important to him. Um, I think I've seen that every time he's played. Yeah. It's, it's like one of the best Husker do songs in my mind. Right. And whereas I don't know that this song was ever a set staple, even yeah. on the even on the tours for it. I'd have to do a little digging, but it's not one that seems to come up often or be met. It really doesn't. I've never really hear anybody mention this song. No, it's a great song though. Um, in in my mind, this and the next song, sorry, somehow not to prefigure that too much, are just they're like um, despite the individual. Um, band members' personal feelings about them or sort of how often they're played. In my mind, when I go back and listen to it, I just think they're perfect expressions of this period of Husker Du. So I, I think this song could be just right at home on New Day Rising, on Flip Your Wig. Obviously, it's on Candy Apple Grey. Um, I just think it's like, it's catchy, it's fast, like it's got like a great hook. Yeah, I just think it's like, there. it's a really great expression of where the band was around this time. Yeah, agreed. So next would be Sorry Somehow, uh, which is the second single. It's another Grant Hart composition, and it's another great song. It's another song that I think should have been a hit, and it has great, you know, there's the keys in the background that, that Bob uh, Bob is playing the keys, I believe. And I don't have, I don't really have too much to add on, on this one, except that it's another album highlight. And it definitely, definitely, definitely should have been a hit. Yeah. Yeah, same. I mean, I guess I covered this with the previous song a little bit, but this, um, Sorry Somehow, and I don't know for sure in my mind, are just like, are both great songs and um, could, could all be on any of the three albums that came out around this time. Yeah, like it has, like, when, and when I saw your notes and I thought about it, I went, yeah, you know, Again, production aside, because obviously the, the production of, of Sorry Somehow compared to New Day Rising is, you know, mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, how much more the, the quality has jumped. But even with New Day Rising, thinking about, like, uh, books about UFOs, like, right. it, it's got that, that mm -hmm. whole feel to it. Yeah. So for our next track, uh, Too Far Down um, by Bob Mould. So something that um, – you know, stands out to me. So um, is that, so this on the LP, um, this is the last song on side A, right? So, um, and then the first song on side B would be hardly getting over it, right? So like you'd mentioned earlier, Greg, um, this is the only example on the record of a Bob song following a Bob song, right? So I wonder if it's kind of a bold move on their part to end side A with sort of a downer acoustic, Bob song and to begin side B with a downer acoustic Bob song. Um, but you can, anyway, you slice it. Um, you can definitely hear that. Um, this is the dude who's going to eventually write workbook, right? Like, absolutely. And, and this one is a solo like Bob composed. And I believe plays everything on this track. Like it's, it's just Bob and um, lyrically it touches on, themes about depression that you know bob himself said that he didn't know he had depression until 10 years after the song 
you know, he says, looking back, it's pretty clear, but you know, at the time he just wrote the song and it's, it's a, it's a great song. It definitely is a great song. It's, it's not like a, uh, you know, summertime on the patio cranked up right, right. type song, yeah. but it, you know, and I don't know if it's just because the word gray is in the title, but like, if you could hear colors, the album sounds gray. Like yeah. it sounds like, 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 gray, like it sounds like, like what I picture, like, you know, Manchester or something almost like it has that, <laughs> you know, like, a, it's, it's gray, it's cloudy, it's depressing. Um, it really does kind of capture that whole vibe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So next track is uh, Hardly Getting Over It, which is a Bob song. A couple thoughts. Um, for fans of the band Farside, they do like a really awesome cover of this. It's very true to the original. So Yeah, it is. It is. It's Farside are a band actually where looking back, hearing it now with my ears, I'm like, they were heavily influenced by mm-hmm. Husker Du. Mm-hmm. So this cover, I had heard about this cover around the time it came out because I was getting into all the Revelation stuff. But um, they were, you can clearly, especially in like their later stuff, lots of lots of Husker Du vibes. So if you haven't checked out that cover, definitely check it out and then just listen to the Monroe Doctrine and uh, – rigged or rigid is it rigged 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 rigged, i can never pronounce it i was like is it rigid no it's not rigged it's rigged listen to rigged yeah yeah great record yeah and in my mind hardly getting over it is a ballad like to compete with uh a later track on the record so grant hart's um no promise have i made both awesome songs um grant's a little more upbeat than the overtly depressing hardly getting over it um, so a little bit of backstory. So as a kid, I heard the Bob song um, on the No Alternative record. The Bob song is titled Can't Fight It, which I believe is not available on all streaming services, but you can find it if you can find the song on YouTube. There's also on No Alternative, there's a, a Killer American Music Club song on that, um, maybe one of my favorites. But the reason that um, uh, I had no alternative it was actually my older brother's copy of it that he got for easter because there was a secret nirvana song on there verse chorus verse that's um, a great song by the way that's like is. one yeah. of the one of the top nirvana songs um on there that mm-hmm. that comp also was the first time and and these are both in the in the husker Matt's universe first time i heard goo goo dolls and it's a cover yeah. of I, I think the rolling stones bitch yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not even Johnny Resnick singing. So I didn't know that. I thought it's it's like their friend, uh, the soul singer, Lance Diamond, the late Lance Diamond, who sings. So oh. I was like, this is what they sound like? And then Soul Asylum do a really good cover of Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye. Yeah. I, I, I love that cover. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's, an, that's officially an awesome cover. The other thought I just have about hardly getting over it, um, I think the Bob song on No Alternative is just him, an acoustic guitar, and I think it's a drum machine in the background. Um, I can either, uh, I can't confirm that offhand, but um, it's just that, that if you give Bob an acoustic guitar and a drum machine and he'll write you a song that'll move you to tears. Like, and I think this song, Too Far Down, the song on No Alternative, um, all exhibit just the sheer um, power that he has as a songwriter. I agree. Like he can, he can be powerful with a wall of, of, you know, amps behind him screaming, but he can be just as powerful, just him and a guitar, which he, he still to this day does tours where it's just him and either sometimes an acoustic guitar and sometimes it'll be just him and his, uh, his electric guitar. Yeah. And then for, for this song, I, you, you basically hit all the points, you know, this is a a great Bob Mould song. It, you know, as a kid, I think when I needed everything to be immediately pulverizing, uh, it, (laughs) it didn't push those buttons, even though, even then I loved, you know, REM was like always my exception to the rule. But as time's going on, I realized, I mean, this is just a, a absolutely fantastic composition. And I see why this is one that Bob would still 
play to this day. Yeah. So then we go, the mood picks up a little bit. And uh, next track would be a Grant Hart, Dead Set on Destruction. So uh, what are your thoughts on that one, Jude? I just, I, I, this is, I love this song. This could be a song off the Jesus and Mary chain stoned and dethroned if you slowed down the BPMs. Um, in my mind, this song is the musical equivalent of driving with the windows down and sunglasses on on a 75 degree day. Does that make sense? Like, it's just like. Yeah. And it's funny that this was like we talked about earlier, the, the only other track besides Crystal that, that Warner Brothers deemed to highlight in the CD. Yeah. It was never a favorite of mine, but the irony is, is that even as I wrote these notes, I, I wrote, you know, it's a cool song not necessarily a highlight, but not one I'd skip, but it's, especially these, this last week or so listening to this album, it's been the one that's most stuck in my head. Um, and it has like that, it, I totally see what you mean. It has that vibe, um, little bit of a late sixties kind of psychedelic, um, rock vibe to it. Um, it's another good song. Like I said, Grant really did like, this is a Grant album. Mm-hmm. Like regardless of what I think about the Bob songs, um, it's a Grant album. Next up, we have uh, Eiffel Tower High. It's a mood song, catchy song, good song. Another one that I've never hear anyone talk about um, with this album. Some cool lyrics that I know uh, Jude's going to touch on a little bit more. But the line, uh, Box of Junior Mints, always makes me think of the Seinfeld <laughs> the Seinfeld episode with the junior mint. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of all I got on this one. It's a, it's uh, catchy and it does that Husker do trick where at the end, they just kind of go off and repeat the same line, but you know, change the melody a bunch and make it stick in your head. Yeah. 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 So some, some pretty surreal lyrics. Um, uh, as you said earlier, Grant and Bob were smoking opium at the time of recording this record. I'm curious how much that influenced the composition of this song, if at all, or at least the lyrics, right? So like, as I understand it, the song is essentially about a woman who kind of like goes to the movies and then just like gets lost in it. There's even a line in there that's something like, yeah, something about this being a surreal experience, I think is the is the word in it. But there's the, the one line that stands out to me is she buys herself a seat and then sits on the floor is like a super clever line. It could almost be like a Paul Westerberg line. Like it's just like too cute by like just one half of a turn. It's like, totally a Paul Westerberg line. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, and until you brought it up earlier before the episode, I went, you know, he's right. It's so Westerberg. Yeah. Thinking of like, you know, it reminds me of kind of like a movie that nobody rushes to see. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, um, I'll make, make you an offer you might refuse. So the other thought about this one is it's obviously, um, it's obviously a Husker song on this record, but the melodies in this, I think this could be at home on any Bob or sugar record. Right. Um, agreed. Pony shows some of the later stuff that he's been doing on merge could be right at home on file under easy listening and it's actually she's kind of like a movie everyone rushes to see my bad there you go (laughs) not perfect i'm only (laughs) human (laughs) um yeah i i agree to it it has like i could totally see if they just if bob's vocal was buried a little more and the guitars were uh you know a a more of a wall of guitars it would have been a a song on at home on file under easy listening yeah. So um, next is another Grant Hart song, and this is his solo composition on the record. Um, you know, Bob had Too Far Down and Grant has this. And I'm going to read just an excerpt uh, from Bob's book about this song in particular. So he writes, in the end, Candy Apple Gray was an incomplete album. After Too Far Down, the quality suddenly dropped and two songs foreshadowed the problems to come. Too Far Down was my solo endeavor. No promise have I made was Grant's. Uh, We were both very protective of our solo songs. We worked alone and didn't share the results until the tracks were finished, allowing no input from the others. In hindsight, it was as if we were jockeying for position with Karen Berg, 
like two kids competing for a parent's affection. There had been a healthy competition between Grant and me, but with these solo endeavors, it had taken a lousy turn. So this is just Grant on everything. Um, it's, it's a ballad on the album and it's a good song. It sounds to me like nothing else that they had done previously. Like it's, you know, piano based, um, but it's a really great song. And honestly, yeah. um, another one I never hear people talk about, but yeah, it's good. Cause it's, it's a, it's a really, really well-written track. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. My only thoughts about this one, that's interesting to hear that um, they were both uh, actively or um, tacitly competing for um, the position of who could write the better ballad on this song, because I always thought about this one as a ballad on par with hardly getting over it. Um, and it seems like that was a pretty accurate understanding of what was going on in the writing of the record. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it is. It, it, I feel like too far down and hardly getting over it always get talked about as far as from this record. Yeah. And um, this song does not. Yeah. So that takes us to the last track on the album, All This I've Done For You. Um, I think this song's awesome. I think it's super underrated. I think that as I was prepping for the episode, it jumped out at me even more. Um, it's a great closing track. It has cool lyrics. And I've always loved the, the lyric, and I think it's the second verse. Now I'm a little bit older, but I'm not a hell of a lot wiser. Um, <laughs> is just a total bob line. Mm -hmm. And the music rips. It has that explosive ending. Great backup vocals from Grant. Um, it's a great way to end this album. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's just such a killer closer. Um, like really, really an anthemic way to end the, an anthemic and upbeat way to end the album. And it stands out to me as um, such a great, um, such a great closer, given that there's two solo, there's two, not purely solo, but there's two acoustic Bob songs on here and um, a piano ballad from Grant on here. Um, right. And so it's like opens with crystal, this blistering mm -hmm. track, and then ends with this upbeat track. So it can almost, even for someone who's not sold on the album, I feel like it can almost make you forgive the middle of yeah. the sandwich because <laughs> the bread's good. And especially, especially the bottom piece yeah. uh, here with, with this song. So I guess that'll move us into, so what we're going to do with the albums is we're going to, both choose our favorite tracks they may we didn't discuss them beforehand uh they may be the same and they may not be the same and then we will add them to a playlist that we'll share uh in a little bit on our socials once once we have it built up a little bit i think uh yeah. you know we're not going to share a playlist with four tracks on it <laughs> um and you know for the hooskers because there's two main songwriters, we'll actually be choosing one Grant song and one Bob song. So Jude, what's your favorite? Um, we said this is a Grant Hart album. So okay. we'll start with Grant. What's your favorite Grant Hart composition from Candy Apple Gray? So for me, kind of a maybe controversial or um, not expected pick, but I'm going to go with Dead Set on Destruction. Uh, as we've talked about on this particular episode, obviously um, maybe one of the most well-known Grant songs and even one of the most well-known Husker Du songs is on this. Um, don't want to know if you're lonely, but one thing that um, really struck me this week about listening to Dead Set on Destruction is um, from what I can tell from the lyrics, it seems to be about somebody who's hoping to uh, catch a plane ride to see someone, right? But there's a hurricane that is keeping them grounded, right? Um, and the lyrics are almost like, um, uh, uh, extremely not metaphorical, right? There's a line in there about like, there's only one virgin and she don't fly. Um, but <laughs> one thing that stands out to me about this song um, right now, right, is sort of the relevance. And I think it's what makes Husker Du uh, just an amazing band. The relevance of a song about um, wanting to be in contact with people that you care about and a force of nature um, keeping you from being able to do that. That's some cool insight. I didn't even, I never thought of it that way. 
definitely changed the way I hear it going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just such a, I don't know. It's just, for me, it's like such an awesome, it's just so awesome. How about you, Greg? What's your favorite Grant song? So I'm, I'm a pop guy at heart, right? Like we've, we all know this, like I'm the, you know, a well-written song is, is just always hits me right where in the feels. This is a tough one to choose because on one hand, I wanted to just say, don't want to know if you're lonely. Cause that was the first song. Cause you know, like I said, this is the first album I heard. I heard crystal and thought this is kind of crazy. And then that song hooked me in, but I think I'm going to go with sorry somehow. Huh. I think that um, it's, even though it was a single, I think that it is just such a great song. I love the keyboard part. I love the end grants, you know, pleading vocal, just screaming, sorry. It just, every time hits me. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's an amazing song. So now how about Bob? What, what would you say is your favorite Bob track on Candy Apple Gray? I'm going to offer another unusual pick. My favorite Bob song on Candy Apple Gray is Eiffel Tower High. So um, why I love that song is that I think it just perfectly exhibits his abilities to write a song that is like super, super catchy, um, has like, obviously the production on, on this record is different than the production on a um, Sugar record is different than the production on say like Going Back on um, New Day Rising. Um, but it just exhibits Bob's ability to write a song that's like super catchy, has great hooks, and um, just has like super great big guitar work happening in it. Kind of a strange song too, I guess, back to back with Dead Set on Destruction, which is um, Eiffel Tower High is like a kind of has like really kind of trippy, surreal lyrics about a woman who, you know, goes into the movies and never comes back. Whereas Dead Set on Destruction is like almost the opposite, right? It's like a, seems to be a very, very literal message that, about that in that song. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great track. My track um, is my choice. Track is also kind of a curveball, um, and it's one that I'm going to be honest. If you would have asked me this question before doing the, you know, research for the episode and before really trying to listen to it with with that mindset, probably would have maybe even picked different song, uh, different songs. But I'm going to go with all this I've done for you. I am a huge fan of when a closing track on the album is just a, a anthemic, great song. You know, it almost reminds me of a, a band we touched on in episode one, Lifetime. Mm. They always put these really anthemic songs as their last song, like Ostracized from uh, Hello Bastards where you hear it and then you just want to flip the record over and start it all over again. Yeah. Um, and I just think this song's classic Bob, love the lyrics, love the sound, love the, the execution. Um, it's an awesome song. Yeah. Totally agree too, that this is definitely a super underrated Bob song. It's one that I, in planning for this episode, um, really started to appreciate even more than I had before. And then like another thing that we kind of have talked about already, and I'm sure we'll continue to get into, but, um, and I think what makes uh, Husker Du such an amazing band is that if you asked me this question um, a decade ago, I would have said that my favorite Bob song was Hardly Getting Over It, which is objectively like an amazing song. Yeah, like I would have probably said, I don't know for sure. Yeah. I mean, I even would put that song when I'd make like playlists like that would be a song I'd pick, but in, in revisiting, I I'm going to go with all this I've done for you. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, there, I think we got a nice selection of four tracks that again, once we have a couple more under our belts, we'll throw them in a Apple music and Spotify playlist and you know, listeners can, can check them out. So that's it for this week. Thanks everyone for listening and we're both really looking forward to you joining us on our future explorations of this essential Midwestern punk rock. Next time, we're going to be discussing The Replacements' 1987 album, Please to Meet Me, which was their second album for Sire Records. Um, and it's also an essential one that in some ways is a, a big departure for the band, but in other ways it helped propel them into some new territory. 
So I'm really looking forward to digging into that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's me too. So thanks everybody. And, uh, have a good one. Thanks folks. So,